when I find myself in that position of leadership, I'm all of a sudden having to navigate, first of all, a, a world of mostly people who don't look like me. There's just so much less of a sense of kinship uh, towards the top of these large organizations. But also, I'm needing to understand the systems so that I can shift them. That's the name of the game. It's like, how can I capture and learn the rules of the system so I can play the system better? And those rules or the way things work either are invisible to the movement, so to speak, at the grassroots, or it's just completely painted as bad, suspect, awful. Mm. And I don't disagree with them. I mean, the reason that I'm in these positions is because I want to be um, making change and shifting some of the, the rules by which we play the game. Welcome. I'm your host, Rohin Bajram, on a mission to redefine the faces of leadership through speaking, consulting, and writing. Unspeakable Leadership is a space to reclaim our stories and empower each other to see the value in how we, as women of color, lead. I hope you'll join me on this journey of unpacking experiences, lessons learned, sharing laughs, and likely a tear or two. Let us grow together in conversation. I am so excited to be in conversation with an incredible leader who I have gotten to know over the last couple of years and have also had to uh, share some farewells and some goodbyes as they have transitioned into different roles for whom I've admired. Let me tell you a little bit about this next speaker. Dr. Aftab Irfan is the Executive Director of the Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University. She is also an associate member at SFU School of Public Policy and a board member at the Vancouver Foundation. Previously, Aftab served as the inaugural Chief Equity Officer at the City of Vancouver and the Director of Dialogue and Conflict Engagement at the University of British Columbia. Aftab is an urban planner by training and has extensive experience as a process designer and facilitator spanning 15 years and four continents. She specializes in hosting dialogues on contentious issues with warmth, creativity, and an aspiration for systemic change. And let me just tell you, that last part of Aftab's bio could not be more truer. I have witnessed Aftab take individuals through a journey of growth and discovery on some of the most tough questions and issues and led them into enlightenment and lightness. So Aftab, thank you for being here. This is also a great example of warmth as a way of convening. Thank you for that. That's very sweet. And and it immediately took me back to those rooms we were in together a few years ago and all the difficult conversations that we managed to get through. So, (laughs) so happy to be here, Rohin, and um, so glad to make it to season one of your podcast. You are so kind. I just think of that moment. There was a moment when we were in a room together and I remember there was so much silence. The The air was thick, thick with emotions and tension. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, where is this going to go? Like, where is this conversation going to take us? And you just cut through that air with probably one of the most beautiful questions, which is just asking people to sit with what's coming up for them. 
And you have this way of facilitating those conversations, Aftab. And I, I just want to say thank you for being somebody who models the ability to hold space and to hold that that tension in the room with so much grace. I, I truly learned a lot that day and both thought to myself, could I ever do this? And how can I do this? So I just want to honor that piece. Aftab, we have known each other for a while, and yet I feel like I probably don't know every single thing. So I'm going to start off with the first question that I've been asking every guest, and that is, can you share with us your leadership journey and what drives you in your work today? Yes, thank you for that. Uh, I think when we met Rohin, we um, jumped into a lot of things together, but we actually never really did like a full sum intro. I think when I listened to the introduction to your podcast was really actually maybe the first time when I realized, oh, this is your story and this is where you're coming like with a little bit more detail than what I knew just kind of off the side of our conversation sort of way. So yeah, I'll, maybe I'll just start with sharing a little bit of that in return the part of your story that really resonates with mine is this story of migration and immigrating across the world. In my case, my family came to this part of the world, Coast Salish territories from Iran uh, in the 90s. I was 15, about 15 when we moved. We, uh, you know, had, a, I think, a fairly typical tough few years at the beginning especially and in some ways there's been more ease and in some ways it continues to be quite difficult and of course the the distance is hard and feeling this kind of profound connection to some other place in the world but not actually being there uh, and and in some ways having a kind of break from the ancestral lines at least in terms of actually knowing folks those are those are prominent features i would say in my story I grew up uh, during the time of war in Iran, but when I was born and until the age of eight, there was a war between Iran and Iraq at the time. And we lived in the capital city and at some points it really impacted us. There was bombardments of the, the major cities and we had to escape to a little village. And so I think there is something in my almost like in the DNA or in my ML, which is really a, a kind of how can we stop war and can we avoid war and is there a different way? Because I feel like the kind of things that I saw happen through war, I just don't want to see that happening to other people. And of course, lots of that happening in the world right now. And, and something that drives me in my work as a facilitator, as a person who works in conflict, how do we take a path that's not going towards war and not necessarily with the tanks and the bombs but I think we are in a moment in time where relationally we can be at war so often with so many people around us and it's a tough place to be and it's a destructive place to be so yeah there's definitely kind of a bias or orientation towards alternatives to war, peace in a way, and peace as the presence of justice, not just the presence of quiet or something like that. But I think we we have so much opportunity for that in our society right now and so many missed opportunities as we, on autopilot, go towards escalation of conflict. So that's maybe a summary of what drives me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... I want to say thank you. I, I remember 
after something you said in a training that you had facilitated many years ago around conflict, you had asked individuals in the room, and I was one of them, are you the person who runs towards the fire or are you the person who runs away from it? And I remember just that visual imagery that you had ignited in the training session being so profound. And for me, I think I was one of the few uh, individuals in that room who said, I run towards a fire. And then I started to reflect on, on why that was the case. And, and so I think of what you've just shared is that your experience of growing up of, during a time of war gave you a very different sense of defining conflict, uh, of perceiving both the harm and the opportunity and how can conflict then be healthier without there being this violence and this weaponization of both words as well as tools and infrastructure that can really break down communities and break down countries and break apart families. And so I wonder if you can speak a little bit to how has that been your sort of golden or silver thread in in choosing to be in spaces of conflict during your leadership journey? You know, one of the things I think that happens when you come from an actual war zone is that the conflicts in institutional spaces look relatively manageable in comparison to that. I've been in so many rooms where everybody is like kind of quite activated. And it's not that I don't get activated, but there's that bigger perspective of, well, actually, like nobody is in actual physical danger in this moment. We are not going to die. We're going to make our way through this. And we have some choices to make about that. And, and, and in a way, the more we are regulated, the more we are in our best thinking, the more we are in our deepest thinking and and outside of our uh, very sort of individualistic, self-serving motives, the, the more likely it is that we can make our way through these difficult moments. So yes, in, in a way, I think most people would also experience me as someone who runs towards the, the fire, towards conflict. And part of that mm-hmm. It's not that I'm looking for it, but that the conflicts about how do we speak with each other, who gets which part of the office or who gets to lead in what way, those are manageable compared to some of the bigger ones that I'm coming from. And yeah, I, I do think that we avoid the, the war by being in better, healthier conversations together. Mm-hmm. I will say some of this has been challenged and is continuously challenged in this realm of uh, social justice, which I know we have a a shared interest in what is happening in that space. And from time to time, I I will be in the room where colleagues are talking about, well, no, actually, we just have to fight this as hard as we can and and use all the tools and take Mm -hmm. it to the courts and take it to the street and break the window, you know, like just even some of the more edgy, if you will, some of the more on the verge of violence tactics. I think it's important to be able to talk about those. And I don't have a a strict rule of that is never okay. I just think it's got to be our last resort, because as you say, so much gets destroyed. And actually, the people who are most vulnerable are actually the ones who most often get destroyed in heated conflict and escalation of conflict in lawsuits. And, you know, in so in terms of protecting people, the, the more we have other tools, the less likely it is that we need to use those. Yeah. 
I love the offering that you have around other tools because often I think in spaces where justice and really injustice is probably the better naming for me to raise that there is a, a propensity to want to use the the similar tools that created the injustice. And so I often think of, well, what's the alternate? What is the better tool to pick up or to utilize, to shift towards redefined ways of being, redefined ways of thinking? And I want to kind of tease out something that I've been mulling over. And this has been sparked by many of the conversations that you and I have had around leadership roles. And it's the sense that when you enter your first or sometimes your second or sometimes in your case, multiple leadership roles, we get closer and closer to what feels like proximity to power. And and power can mean different things. And so I, I guess my first question for you is, what does proximity to power mean to you? And how has that shown up in your leadership journey when you think about the different tools that you can rely on in that mm-hmm. wielding mm-hmm. of power? Yeah, I think we can go down this rabbit hole of trying to define power. Maybe the most straightforward way that it shows up uh, is literally uh, in terms of being in formal positions of power or close to formal positions of power. So in the past few years, five years or so in my life and career, I've now had titles that start with chiefs and executive and that kind of thing. I'm part of power in these Mm -hmm. large institutions where I have uh, decided to spend my time. And and in many ways, I've either had a lot of decision-making power or have been literally very close to have been a a confidant or an advisor to somebody who has a lot of power in the sense of being able to make large decisions that have huge impact for lots and lots of people. But when I first uh, started in these positions, I happened to be reading a book called Power for All, Julie uh, Batilana and Taziana Cassiaro, if I'm getting those names right. This is maybe the most comprehensive book that I've read on power. But there's this section that talks about what happens to leaders as they make their way up the ladder of leadership, if you will, and what are the consequences of an experience of power on individuals. And this is a very interesting chapter. It talks about proximity to power or having power makes people less attentive to others' emotions. They did these studies of literally, as you go higher and higher in an organization, your ability to read emotions from the faces of people is diminished. You know, when you need that doesn't give us any hope the most to be able to know what's going on with people, you can't understand what's going on with people. There's an increase in self focus and less empathy, there's increase in self confidence. So, powerful people are more brave, they believe they have greater control over aspects of their actions. And it literally, as you move in that position, you move in this direction, and in some way. You need to because you're needing to make bold decisions. And so that kind of disinhibition needs to actually relax to be able to let you actually make the decisions. They might be more more able to justify selfish actions as altruistic and virtuous. So there's this ability to do things and justify them to yourself. 
And then there's increased self-serving, impulsivity, and feelings of exceptionalism. The rules that apply to other people don't apply to me. I'm at the t- If I don't get what I need, the whole thing is going to fall apart so I can justify making exceptions for myself. I think we need to take this pretty seriously. And, and so the antidotes that uh, the, the authors offer in this book is it, basically there's two, cultivating empathy, which is an antidote mm-hmm. to that kind of self-focus and cultivating humility, which is uh, an antidote to the hubris that can come with uh, walking into leadership positions. So I think in many ways and, and on a personal level, that has been the journey. It's like, how do I cultivate empathy and how do I cultivate humility? And working in conflict in some ways relies on cultivating empathy. That's so much of what is happening. It's seeing people for what they're saying and helping pull out the essence of what they're saying, giving some validity to the part of their truth that actually needs to stand in this room and not villainizing too quickly. Just the, the, the quicker we villainize, the quicker we go towards war. So, so that kind of quality of cultivating empathy, I think, comes very naturally in my line of work. And cultivating humility to some degree as well, because there's so many moments of I don't know what the heck is going to happen, what's going to go. There's no control. I do not have the answers. Like it would be, it would be just unfathomable to think that I can go in with answers. And so, it it is again the line of work often helps put me in place. And even even when I'm using my best skill and I'm at, at the top of my game, things go wrong and things blow up and. So it's easy to be humble in a way. So that said, I think there's all these kind of very important dangers of leadership that we need to be aware of. I think the other things that happens when we're in proximity to power, and especially in spaces where we care about justice um, and this move towards equity, I, I noticed that something else happens, which is that I come from in so many ways, I, I come from community, I come from the grassroots, the, the concerns of activists have been my mm-hmm. concern. I've been an activist for a big chunk of my life. And then I entered large organizations and rose to positions of power. And what I was finding was that the people who were my friends until yesterday as part of the movement, so to speak, all of a sudden are not my friends anymore in, in the sense mm-hmm. of they are suspicious of me. There, there's like this kind of sharp critique. And again, to some degree for a good reason, if all these horrible things are happening to me, if I'm losing my empathy and I'm becoming self-centered, I, I believe that that is happening. But I think there is also something about the grassroots of our movements, which is making them... Um, in some ways, like allergic to power, allergic to mm-hmm. authority. There was this very interesting article that came out last year by Maurice Mitchell. It's called Building Resilient Organizations, and it made its way through the circles of activists that I speak with. And in a way, it's like a critique, if you will, from inside the social justice movement, of the social justice movement. And Maurice Mitchell has this section that talks about anti-leadership attitudes within the social justice movement. I'm just going to read this little paragraph because I think it's kind of poignant. So he defines anti-leadership attitudes, holding skepticism of leadership as a rule, questioning the authority, legitimacy, and competence of those 
with positional, perceived, or other forms of power. Therefore, all decisions made by leadership are subject to broad-based skepticism and mistrust. Valuing expertise and experience is challenged as potentially elitist. Professionalization is cited as problematic aspect of how leadership and power are meted out. Anti-intellectualism is promoted as an egalitarian appreciation of more informal forms of skill or knowledge. This is not to be confused with a healthy skepticism of authority and leadership, including within movement spaces. But yeah, you know, that kind of almost anything that I do as a leader is suspect because I'm exercising it from a place of leadership. And I think it's kind of ironic because for so many years, we've been on this journey to get more folks of power, more women, gender diverse folks, more LGBTQ for getting the minorities into positions of power. And yeah, I think as soon as we find them there as the movement, in some way, we abandon them or we hold them to a pretty impossible standard. From my perspective, it's like when I find myself in that position of leadership, I'm all of a sudden having to navigate, first of all, a a world of mostly people who don't look like me. There's just so much less of a sense of kinship uh, towards the top of these large organizations. But also I'm needing to understand the systems so that I can shift them. That's the name of the game. It's like, how can I capture and learn the rules of the system so I can play the system better. Mm. And those rules or the way things work either are invisible to the movement, so to speak, at the grassroots, or it's just completely painted as bad, suspect, awful. Mm. And I don't disagree with them. The reason that I'm in these positions is because I want to be um, making change and shifting some of the the rules by which we play the game. But unless we understand them and have some appreciation for what are they trying to do, what are they actually trying to protect? Some of it, for sure, they're trying to protect the status quo and the people who already have power. But they're also, sometimes they're just trying to protect the existence of the organization. They're trying to protect against other forms of abuse. They're trying to protect against the feeling that anything goes there's good reason sometimes that the system is built the way that it is built not all of it but some of it and so what i'm saying is unless we understand that and unless we engage with that they'll always be banging at the door saying things aren't right but we're not actually going to make change so for those of us who are in the room trying to make change it's a very tough question and i think what i've realized is The folks who are at the door banging at the door, in so many ways, they're in the right. But Mm -hmm. that feeling of we still share the same goals, but we are not on the same page is tough on me as a leader. Yeah, And it's a little hard to invite more of the folks from the movement into this room when I know how tough it is, when I know how brutal it can be, how what it means in terms of who no longer speaks to you or, that, or doesn't trust you, it's, it can be very painful. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think if we have both, both as leaders within these rooms and how we connect with the folks at the door and as the folks at the door, how we connect with the leaders, like that's going to make a huge difference to mm-hmm. whether or not we can actually turn things around, especially in the large institutions of large systems that uh, we are trying to problematize and change. 
Mm-hmm. After I, I got goosebumps with the imagery that you created with the banging at the door. Because I think in many ways, you and I both have been at many doors banging at the door. And then the imagery that, that comes to my mind is when you're on the other side of the door and you're given this bunch of keys and you're trying to figure out how the hell are you going to open this door with all of these keys that have not been, they've not been labeled, they're not organized. <laughs> they are. Some keys are just like completely banged up, but you know it's still going to open up a door. And so when you are in that leadership role, particularly as a woman of color on the other side, and we're trying to figure out the right keys to the right door so we can unlock the door so we can open up more doors. So in some cases, we can d- completely question, do we even need a door in the first place? I think of that imagery being such a powerful metaphor for how sometimes as women of color, we're beaten up in the process of trying to unlock those doors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that no amount of time that we sometimes dedicate or the pace of change that we dedicate is ever good enough. And it gets to the point that we get attacked more than the actual issue. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel your pain because I've experienced that too. Mm-hmm. And then when I see other young women of color wanting to also move into leadership roles, I, I do think, I'm like, oh gosh, mm-hmm. I'll extend my hand. I'll absolutely support you, but this is going to be tough. And seeing another woman of color breaking down and breaking apart, which I think you and I have seen multiple times, is it questions for me an ethical part of my leadership. And I'm curious, how, how do you stay true to yourself? Yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say the answer to that is reading poetry. I think that actually probably is my most reliable answer. <laughs> um, and in my case, I come from a place in the culture where poetry is king. That matters a lot. Mm-hmm. So you can only stay human if you're connected with the arts. And I, I think of poetry specifically because that's the site in which, in a way, complex, contradictory emotions are reconciled and can can coexist. So yeah, some kind of grounding in some aspect of where you're coming from, some aspect of connection with other people. This is a helpful conversation for me already. Um, And I feel like the other part of it for me is a kind of intellectual honesty about what is going on. What I'm finding is that We've bec- we're very good at criticizing the system and the white powers and the actual leaders of the organization, the, the majority in, in leadership, for their part in making it super tough for, let's say, women mm-hmm. of color and leaders. Like we've, we've mastered that critique. We are very good at it. And there's a lot of stories about that. I don't think we are yet very good at in a way, the critique of what the movement itself is doing to make the conditions impossible. And this is even, it's a risky thing to be saying on a podcast, I feel to some degree, but 
we need that critique from an intellectually yeah. honest perspective. Um, and it doesn't mean that all fingers all of a sudden point in that direction. It's not like an mm -hmm. escape goal. We are not looking for another escape goal. We are looking for what is not working, like what in this system is producing the results that it's producing so that we can loosen it up, we can change it, we can make some difference. And so I think it is the thing that helps me stay grounded or sane is not giving over the ability to think critically about things, whether or not that is the politically correct way of doing things or what my peers or the, the people around me are holding up to be the correct way of thinking about something. Sometimes the crowd is correct and sometimes the crowd is not correct. Like we got to be able to think for ourselves. And that seems very important because yeah. otherwise I'm just going with groupthink mm. and that's what takes us into dangerous territory. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying is risky and I'm going to put myself in beside you and to also provide a, a sense of cloaking to say, I think what we're just about to say just now is going to be the thing that some people who are listening are going to be angry at us about or some will probably breathe a sigh of like, I got somebody saying it. And when I look at particularly the last few years with the social justice movement, I think we've done a really good job at naming the harms and being able to talk about some really critical conceptualizations like white fragility and so many other concepts. And that's pushed people away. That's also pushed people towards complacency or perhaps just getting into a place where they just can't deal with it anymore, so they don't give a damn anymore. And then sometimes then our voices have become louder and louder because we're not getting perhaps uh, the same sort of level of respect that, or the same level of attention, even like a year ago or the year before that. And so it's feeling as if there's a dying down of something. And I think that we see that in some of the narratives around DEI and EDI. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't help but wonder if there is an opportunity now for us to articulate a different movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A movement that brings people in rather than excludes them that allows us to start to actually see each other as humans. Like I think back to what you said at the beginning around conflict is what often war does, and we're seeing that right now, is that it dehumanizes people mm -hmm. to the point that such violent atrocities can happen because individuals are not seen as human. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if some of that is happening now where the humanization has com been completely obliterated. And perhaps for women of color, we don't have the alternate language yet mm -hmm. because we fought so hard to even get here 
in being seen. And so I think there's an opportunity for us as particularly leaders and holding that the identities of racialized women to say, let's forge a different path with a different articulation of our experience that perhaps will shift people, the system, our experiences in different ways. Because up until now, some things are changing, but very few things are, which means the method is the issue. Yes, yeah. Amongst many things. Yeah, yeah. That's really beautifully said. I'm also reminded of conversations with Vanessa Andrade, who is now the Dean of Education at UVic, at University of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about this kind of attempt to bring more women of color into leadership positions, and Vanessa would also say, well, and like this is a, a sandcastle, like this kind of idea of organizations with the top and the, this hierarchy and these ways of being this is falling apart. And, and if you look at what's happening just on climate change alone, like the, the order of things is not stable right now. And it, it's, it's yeah. in so many ways, so many of us feel like we're at the end of something or at the end of some kind of phase of this form of organizing civilization, capitalism, whatever that is. And so in, in some way, recreating the same system or trying to sustain the same system just with black and brown faces instead of white faces, that's not the point. Like That is not going to get us out of the dynamic that we are in fundamentally. No. It's just going to change the directionality maybe of who has power if we actually can manage that. But it's not going to get us out of war. So yes, yeah. we need different ways of relating. And, and I do want to say, if I think of myself as inside this metaphorical room, in positions in proximity to power, um, a lot of what I'm doing is trying to make friends, trying to make Mm -hmm. friends with anybody who will be friendly, including these people of whom I have fairly sharp critique that I grew up with. But but there's a kind of, yeah, they're humans. They are dealing with their brains all of a sudden tricking them to think they're the most important people in the world and have control over everything. Like we can see from a psychological perspective, something bizarre is happening to them. (laughs) I think the other way is a relational way. The other way is a way in which power is not used to do things to people. Power is used to do things with people. It's to create, it's to co-create. And so the relational way dictates that we make friends. Yeah. And we see people for who they are so that I can explain to them what's going on with the people at the door. And that's like also a huge part of the the time that I'm spending is like translating the thing that's Mm -hmm. being banged at the door to what does it mean in terms of these keys? What do these actually do? And I do think that there's an element of strategy here. There's a little bit of, you know, you catch a lot of, flies with honey or whatever that expression is but there's a kind of a softness and spaciousness Mm -hmm. with which to explain these very important critical correct 
forms of analyzing and, and asking for change that can be heard yeah. by those in positions of power from where they are. And and I think when, when we do that, there's magical moments in that. Yeah. There's a kind of there's a kind of ability to open and 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 just bring it back to engagement, dialogue, conflict engagement, all of that, the more we can bring the folks at the door in conversation with the folks in the room, mm-hmm. the, the the better chance we have of creating something else, including, I think part of the challenge is when you're at the door, you can't see the complexity of the system. No. It's just, it's not in your line of sight. It's not visible. It's not your fault. You have been in some way kept out, you don't have the view. We can't also expect those folks to make nice and try to make solutions without making the system visible. So that invitation needs to be there. It's like, those are the doors that we need to open. And I do feel like, yeah, creating spaces where we can talk things together and have Mm -hmm. some form of reasonable dialogue. That's where I want to spend my time. Yeah. It, it feels like those spaces are, no doubt they are overwhelming and they're riddled with so many emotions. And yet over time, they are the generative spaces that will allow for change. And we just don't have many of those spaces at institutions. I think we... You know, we schedule the 30-minute meeting and hope all of those, you know, all of those agenda items get knocked out and all of the emotions get somehow packaged in a way that allows us to understand. And that's not how that's not how we work as humans. We're not robots. Looking for a speaker at your next event? Let's talk. I feel like we could unpack in a, a whole nother layer after. And, and I'm also cognizant of, of your time and our time. And so... Perhaps as I take our conversation uh, to a close, I'll invite you to think about right now, we have various listeners. We have women of color who are just starting out in their leadership role. We have others who are well into their leadership role. We also have allies, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And I'm wondering what advice would you give to those who are listening and thinking about where could I take this forward as they think about their proximity to power? Mm-hmm. It's very funny as you pose this question. Um, the, the thing that comes to me is actually the thing that I wrote in my grade 12 year. I don't know if you went to high school in this part I did. of the world, but you know, have you have this kind of like little write up that you do when you're in grade 12 that goes in the yearbook that remains forever sort of thing. And I'm a little bit embarrassed actually about what I wrote because, well, I'll, I'll tell you why. So at the time when I was in grade 12, there was some kind of commercial, I think it's for Sprite or Mountain Dew or something. And the tagline from the commercial was image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. And this is what I wrote in my <laughs> as advice for future generation. Image is nothing. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. And I, I say I'm embarrassed by it because I'm like now I, I live in a pretty kind of anti-material. Like I, I probably wouldn't drink that drink. But there is something about we are at a time where there's a lot of emphasis on image, on like brand, like building your personal. 
I don't think we are meant to do that. I think we are meant to obey our thirst. What is it that we are actually passionate about, that we care about, that we we can do in a way that nobody else can? We got to go and do that instead of chasing image. And so that feels important to me. This was given as advice to one of my children when he was first born. The person said, you know, don't ask what the world needs of you, what the world needs you to do. Do the thing that brings you alive because the world needs more people who have come alive. I love that. It's another way of saying obey your thirst. It it can get very confusing trying to analyze exactly what is needed. What am I supposed to do? What would set me up for the next promotion? Or what, what I have found in my experience is when I do the things that really bring me alive, that's the thing that feels the most worthwhile. And the world sees that. Not all of the world sees that, but in some ways the pieces that matter will see that. And so that feels like a much more dependable strategy for me in terms of navigating a life or a career than chasing the corporate dream or climbing up or or trying to have the largest platform or the best image. Like those are first of all, easily lost, uh, given the chaos of the world. And I don't think create satisfaction in the way that obeying your thirst does. Oh, Aftab, thank you. Thank you so much. I've been carrying tears on the side of my eyes this entire interview. And the whole time I was thinking, I should have put a tissue close by. (laughs) Because every time... I don't even believe in tissues anymore. You have <laughs> sleeves. You you can cry. You got. We, we don't have time for tissues anymore. <laughs> like, emotions are gotta be in the mix. So I hope you oh. don't hold on to those tears. I know. I'll be like, oh, I'll have to wait till the end to be like, okay, now let me try to wipe my eyes. In all sincerity, I two things are just striking. You know, coming up for me is the first one is I really want to go back and look back at my yearbook. I'm like, what did I write? Because I love that. I love that you took the tagline, <laughs> obey your thirst. And I was curious. I'm like, did I get the tagline right? Was that what it was? And then to be able to tease it out as to how it came up for you multiple times over your life and with the birth of your your son and how that also metaphorically came up as well. And the second is the genuine offering that you always give to anyone who you're in conversation with in truly seeing them. And you're one of the very few people that I've had the pleasure of getting to know on this earth who sees people, like really sees their soul, their essence, who they are. And that is such a gift because often the veneer and the image is what people really want to see to connect and you have a beautiful way of just putting that away. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for just being you. Oh, thanks so much. This has been a lovely conversation and there's something about, I think the compliment that you're giving me very much applies to you. <laughs> you can make me see. <laughs> you know, and, and, we do see strength in people often that we have. Um, and, and yeah, I think yeah, you have this also very attentive way of being with people. And I, I definitely feel just so, so lovingly attended to in this past 
hour or so that we've spent together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aftab. Take care. Transitioning from merely claiming a title in your signature to actively shaping dialogue at the tables of influence marks a profound evolution in leadership. Taking up a leadership role transcends the superficial trappings of authority. It means willing to dive deep into the crucible of responsibility and the nexus of power. But make no mistake, the journey to the corner office is not an easy one. It is a relentless ascent fraught with challenges, stresses, and the weight of expectations. My mentor's wisdom resonates with me. Use your platform to do good, Rohim. This is what they would always share. But how does one define good in a terrain where risks are large, safety levels vary, and the specter of insecurity haunts women of color disproportionately? For me, it boils down to three guiding principles. The first, anchor yourself to a moral compass centered on serving others. Leadership isn't about accolades or popularity. It's about effecting meaningful change, even if it means navigating the lonely corridors of misunderstanding or not being liked. Now, don't get me wrong. The loneliness is isolating. And so this also means knowing that you have to find the right people who will stand with you, not only when times are good, also when times are ugly and hard. Second, cultivating an unwavering sense of self-worth and credibility cannot be hinged on external validation, but from the depths of your own conviction. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in what you decide to do. Opinions fluctuate and agendas collide. So to be a leader means to stand firm in your truth so that it becomes a non-negotiable imperative. Lastly, maintaining a conscious distance from the intoxicating allure of power is important for your sanity. Power can really go to your head. The higher the climb, the thinner the air becomes. These are words that have stuck with me during a talk delivered by Dr. Damon Williams, founder of the Inclusive Excellence Model. You have to decide how much of a climb your body and soul can scale. As we all navigate our own leadership journeys of self-discovery, service, and humanity, I really hope you always embrace your essence, trust your intuition, and be unapologetically you. There is an African proverb that says, in the moment of crisis, the wise build bridges 
and the foolish build dams. Who do you need to build bridges with to remind you that power or a title does not define you and what you can do? Now, always remember, the world needs more of you being just you. As always, take care of yourself and see you soon.